Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his presentation, The Beginning of the Good News, a study on the Gospel of Mark, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, Loaves and Fishes, Part 1, recorded in April 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. We're, we're now at the midpoint of our journey through Mark's Gospel. Uh, we've talked about the beginning of the Gospel and how the baptism of Jesus and the announcement of the kingdom uh, are framed within the soundtrack of the Exodus, that this is all a story of the Old Testament being played out uh, in, the, in the time of Jesus. Uh, we talked about how Jesus, uh, how Mark presents Jesus and his authority, um, what the kingdom looks like. Last time we focused on how Jesus extends the work, the ministry of the kingdom to his 12 chosen followers, those whom he chose to be with him. And we talked about the parables that he taught them to form them as disciples. And we talked a bit about the function of that parable of the sower, how it helps explain the, the behavior of different characters in the story, including the 12, who uniquely among all characters in Mark appear to occupy pretty much all four types of response to the gospel at different points in the story. Everyone else is basically slotted in one place, but they embody the full spectrum of human response from success to failure to everything in between. When we last saw, uh, when we last left off, Jesus had sent the 12 to do what he does, to proclaim the gospel, to cast out demons, to heal. And... In that sending forth, which was our bookend, our frame story, he chose them to send out and then he sent them out. We heard of the story of Herod the Great, no, not Herod the Great, but Herod Antipas, and the fate of the messenger of God, John the Baptist. And uh, this was just as Jesus commissioned the 12 as messengers to go forth. We also remember that when Jesus sent them forth, Herod heard about it. So that moment that we ended with was the moment when Jesus, in a sense, went public in a big way. And it's at that point then that we get the story of the behavior of the existing king, the one who stands in the way of God's kingdom. And so with that contrast being set up, we now, in the final third of the Galilean section of Mark, see the climax of what the kingdom, what the kingdom's drawing near looks like. It looks like a meal. It looks like people gathering together for a meal and being filled, being satisfied. The contrast is explicit with Herod's meal that precedes this first story of the feeding of the 5,000. So what I want to do first is, and on the handout on the back, I have one of those little charts, you know, the A, B, C, B, A, to, uh, to show you that, again, the stories that we'll be talking about today, again, follow this pattern of repeating themes over and over again to drive home a point. We're going to begin, though, with the feeding stories here because uh, we need to put them in the context of the Exodus. I mentioned the Exodus just a moment ago as the basic framework, the scenario, the soundtrack of everything that happens in Mark. We saw that at the beginning, especially of the story in Mark, quoting from the book of Exodus, uh, as well as other 
prophets, such as the book of Isaiah, who speaks of a new exodus, that that is the master metaphor. That is what the kingdom of God means in terms of a story. It's the people of Israel on their exodus from, from one kingdom to the kingdom of God, from the kingdom of Pharaoh to the kingdom of God. What I want to focus on first is the ways in which the exodus is present in the description of Jesus' Heal, uh, his, of his feeding of the 5,000 and later his feeding of more people. We always have to remember that Jesus' miracles mean something. They are um, effective for fixing a problem always, but they always mean something. Uh, in fact, in John's gospel, that's the whole point of them. What do they mean? They are signs of something. In John's gospel, they signify something quite different than in Mark. In Mark, uh, we have to assume that what they are signifying is the approach of the kingdom, the, the nearness of God's power reasserted over human life. So why portray that as a meal? And specifically, why set this meal in the place that Mark does? Let's revisit the story. It begins with the twelve coming back, limping and panting from tiredness, from all the work that they've done. And Jesus says, let's take a break. So he takes them away to, uh, to a lonely place, to a deserted place. And um, however, unfortunately, people see them leaving and they follow them uh, to get more of the same. <laughs> so they don't get a rest. And Jesus uh, sees them and has compassion on them and begins to teach them. Let's talk about the details of this story before we get into the actual feeding. First of all, the setting of the story. We're told that this is in a desolate place, literally a wilderness. Usually it's translated deserted place, and that's fine. But if you look at the, uh, the handout, you'll notice that the word in Greek uh, for this deserted place is the same as Mark's plot summary in the very first few verses, where he speaks of the messenger preparing the way of the Lord in the wilderness, in Greek, eremos. When Jesus, even before our story, withdraws from his healing and exorcistic ministry, from proclaiming and enacting the kingdom, he withdraws to an eremos topos, a deserted place, a wilderness place, literally. It doesn't sound felicitous in English when you say wilderness place, but if that helps get you in the right frame of mind, just say wilderness place. Um, and again, when they go to this place, uh, his disciples, when... Uh, they say, you know, there's no one to feed these people. Let's send them back to the inhabited places to be fed uh, because this place, quote, is a wilderness, eremos. And, G and Jesus says, don't worry, you feed them. Do what I do. Do what I would do. What would Jesus do? And again, in the repeated story of the feeding in chapter 8, uh, a similar form of this word is used. How can one feed these people with bread here in the wilderness? We must remember that Galilee is not a wilderness. Galilee is a densely inhabited agricultural region. Now, of course, there's probably places that, where people weren't living, you know, fields and stuff like that. But um, we have to bear in mind that, that where we are is both in Galilee and we, are on, and we are in the desert of Sinai at the same time. Right? That's what this wilderness signifies. It signifies Israel on the march. Israel being constituted as a people to be invited to covenant with God. That's what it means. Let's take a look at some other uh, details of this story, of this miracle that will help put us in the Exodus framework. He saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. I mentioned that last time. Uh, shepherds are kings, 
And so he's saying they were people without a king. Well, they had a king. They have a king. His name is Herod, but he's not behaving like a king. So again, we have this contrast, an explicit contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Herod. How are they different? Uh, In the note here, I say, while Herod and the ruling class busy themselves with birthday banquets and the grisly murder of God's messenger, the people of God are bereft of responsible leadership, and therefore Jesus chooses to act as a king for them, to act on God's behalf. He began to teach them many things. This is part of the, uh, of the meaning of what's going on. So it's not just that he's speaking and Mark doesn't give us the dialogue. What he does is his teaching as well. He's teaching them that they are on the exodus. He's teaching them that he is reconstituting Israel. He already signaled that by choosing 12 guys to do what he does, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. People have responded to that message. Here's where it gets kind of interesting. When he asks how many um, loaves and fishes they have, right? They say uh, five loaves and two fishes, right? Did I get the numbers right? I think. Okay, so he says, okay, um, bring them to me. So they bring them to to Jesus. uh, And as as he's collecting the food, Jesus orders all the people to recline in groups. And um, the, the word in Greek, symposium, is the Greek word for a drinking party or a dining party. So literally, the the language is that he's feasting them in the wilderness, just like Herod feasts his friends in their palace. What's very interesting is the details about where they are reclining in groups and how many are reclining. He has them recline on the green grass. And I would suggest the reason why Mark tells us that the grass is green is not to emphasize that they're out in the wilderness so they don't have picnic tables, but that it's spring. That's when the green grass comes. Exodus, the Exodus begins in the spring, the first month of the year in the Jewish calendar, which is in the spring. So it's taking place, at least implicitly, during a time when Israel would be remembering the Exodus. And in fact, in John's version of this story, this is one of the few stories that is common to all four Gospels, and John makes it explicit. This happened about the time of the Passover. So it's already implicit mark. Even better, he had them sit down by groups of hundreds and fifties, Well, that's exactly the denominations of Israelites um, on their march through the wilderness during the Exodus. Um, I think I give Exodus 18 as well as Deuteronomy. They march, they go on their journey, on their way to the land, uh, to the place God will, will bring them to. They go in groups of 50 and 100 when they camp. So it's pretty blatant. You know, if you think of it as a, as a soundtrack again, this would have been, you know, this, you would know this was the exodus that we were in. Then comes another allusion to the exodus, which only becomes intelligible when we get to the end of the gospel, when we get to the Last Supper. Because in Mark, as in Matthew and Luke, Jesus celebrates a Passover meal with his disciples the night he is betrayed. That Passover meal, we of course know what he does there. What does he do? He takes bread. He gives thanks. He breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples. We do that every Sunday, maybe more than once a week. We know that sequence, taking, blessing, giving thanks, breaking, giving. Well, that exact same sequence of verbs is used here. Not in the explicit context of the Passover, but we know Passover is nearby uh, if this is the time of year. 
So without telling us, Mark is already anticipating that this meal and the significance of this meal will be connected to the significance of that meal on the other end of the gospel. So this is a Eucharist, if you will. He is indeed giving thanks for this. So the same verbs are used. Um, And that, again, conveys the sense of the exodus, at least as it will be defined in the Passover meal. Uh, The exodus is celebrated, commemorated by uh, by unleavened bread, by breaking of unleavened bread every year. The Jews break unleavened bread and they consume a Passover lamb. The symbolism of the Passover lamb is not in Mark's gospel, but the bread is, at least in theory. So this is all about the Passover. It's all about the Exodus. And this story is repeated almost identically from chapter uh, 6, where we have this first one, and then in chapter 8, where, the, where its, its mate appears. Um, the language is almost identical. Uh, in fact, Luke, in his uh, using Mark, he deletes that second story, probably because he thought it was redundant. Uh, how many times does Jesus have to do this to impress people? Well, According to Luke, you only need to do it once. Well, for Mark, you need two of them because that's telling us that everything in between these stories is also going to be about this meal and the significance of this meal. Um, that the meal is significant in itself, that it's not just feeding people who are hungry, it is also that, is indicated by Mark in the very next story. Now, let's jump ahead a bit here. Uh, after... Jesus feeds them and they are all satisfied. Uh, He commands the 12 to to take the boat across the lake while he dismisses the crowd. And, of course, we know what happens. Uh, He decides after he finishes praying that he's going to join them, uh, but there's no boat, so he walks to join them. And uh, when they see him, they don't recognize him. Mark explains why they didn't recognize him. Well, Maybe they didn't imagine he would walk on water, but the point is not that they weren't expecting that. The point is that the reason why they didn't recognize him, says Mark, is because their hearts were hardened, because they did not understand about the loaves. The loaves are significant. We know this because the 12 didn't get it, whatever it was. Um, And this is the first real failure of the 12. Up till now, they've been doing stellar performances. They've been been doing exactly what they've been told. Here, things start to get a little hazy. So they did not understand. So we know there's something to be understood here. Now, there's a detail of the feeding stories we need to take into account. The number of people fed is different in each story. I think it's 5,000, then 4,000. But more significant is the leftovers, It's not just that he feeds a lot of people miraculously. It's that he feeds them and there's more left over. There's an abundance of what he creates for these people. And this overabundance is collected into baskets on each occasion. Twelve baskets full of leftovers the first time, of of crumbs basically. Twelve baskets of leftovers for the first feeding. Seven baskets for the second feeding. And at the end of the story, uh, Jesus is going to quiz the 12 and say, what does it mean? And they won't understand. And uh, probably we don't understand at first glance. Um, I don't know if I understand. Took me a while at least to formulate an idea about it. Many people have speculated. 
But um, that's just profiling that, that, you know, not only is this about the exodus, not only does it, it, it epitomize what the kingdom of God looks like, it looks like Israel on the exodus. It looks like Mark chapter one, verse three, the messenger in the wilderness saying, prepare the journey. Right? That's what the kingdom of God looks like, this meal. Not only does it does that, but it also has a deeper meaning. And that deeper meaning is what we want to investigate tonight. So let's focus, first of all, on the failure of the 12. So these, the failure of the 12 to understand is, in both, is connected with both of these stories. So just like last time when we looked at the bookends, the, the repeated story of the calling and the sending of the 12, that repeated story was joined with another repeated element, the rejection of Jesus by his own, right? his family, his hometown. So in the same way, Mark pairs up this event with the not understanding of the 12. In fact, he calls it the hardening of their hearts. Well, hardening of the hearts is a pretty frequent biblical uh, image, but where does hardening of hearts appear in the Exodus story? Do we remember? Whose heart is hardened in the Exodus story? The Pharaoh. The Pharaoh. Which doesn't bode well for the 12, does it? <laughs> they are not actually <laughs> branded as the Pharaoh. Someone else is. Uh, but the language of the Exodus is there. Uh, let's explore these failures. First of all, the walking on the water. Um, it says that when Jesus was walking on the water, he wanted to pass them by. He saw they were, they were, the wind was against them and they were, the, the motor wasn't working on the boat. They weren't quite getting to the shore. He wanted to pass them by. And I suggest that he wasn't trying to race them. He wasn't trying to race them to see whether he could beat them to the other side. Rather, the, the language of passing by is Exodus language. And it happens on Mount Sinai when God's glory passes by Moses. When he says, let me see, your, let me see you, God. He says, well, you can't see my face, but you can see my backside, my glory. Um, and uh, so Moses, uh, God passes by Moses and he sees some, some part of God, some aspect of God. It's the language of divine manifestation. That's what it means. So he wanted to display himself to them is what, what it means. It wasn't trying to get, get around them. He wanted to display himself. And uh, they, of course, don't recognize him. They think it's a ghost or a, a, a hallucination. Uh, he then uh, says, don't worry, it's me, uh, which could simply mean it's me. It could also uh, be evoking the language of God revealing himself to Moses. I am is literally what it says in the Greek. Um, now, Mark as I think I've suggested before, he doesn't have a very evolved, developed um, understanding of Jesus's relationship to God. You know, we, aren't, we haven't reached Trinitarian theology yet. In fact, I would be fairly reserved about uh, any discussion of Jesus's divinity in the sense that we use it in our tradition. I don't think Mark's there yet. John is there, and our tradition derives mostly from John. But here, uh, it's really simply, he says, here I am. And then it says their hearts were hardened. Well, what was it that they didn't understand about the loaves that caused them not to recognize Jesus? There's a connection between not recognizing when Jesus says, go feed them, and not recognizing when he says, it's me. Um, so it's, again, it's a problem of understanding, right? which is all about uh, the parables, too. You have to understand the parables. Right? That's the great theme in Mark is understanding. Well, let's look at the other uh, bookend that includes this theme of not understanding. And I actually have the passage here to quote to us. It's in chapter 8, 
verses 14 to 21. Let's read this in its totality. It says, now the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread. This is, they're in the boat with Jesus again. They had forgotten to bring any bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. So notice that both of these stories are not only about misunderstanding, they happen in the same place on the boat. And Jesus cautioned them saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They said to one another, it's because we have no bread. Add into English, he said this because it's because we have no bread. He's talking about leaven. Leaven makes bread rise. That's why he's talking about because we have no bread. The disciples are being, are, are being not too smart at the moment, as they often are in Mark. Becoming aware of it, Jesus said to them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? There's that catch word. Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of full broken pieces did you collect? They said, 12. And he said, for the seven, th the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you collect? And they said, seven. seven. Do you still not understand? No, <laughs> I don't understand. But you see, it's very explicit. If, if we want to understand anything about these chapters, the climax, the climactic definition of Jesus's Galilean ministry, we got to understand it. Somehow it connects him, recognizing him with recognizing the bread. Well, we Catholics know what that means, but um, let's, let's stick with the story here. Let's examine this theme of Leaven. Leaven is what makes bread rise. It's a neutral thing. It's actually very useful. However, there's one time in the year where Jews are forbidden to consume leavened bread and even to have it in their houses. What time is that? What part, part of the year? Do you remember? Passover. Passover. And more specifically, the festival of unleavened bread, which Passover inaugurates, a, a week-long festival. Why do the, are they not allowed to have leavened bread, leaven in their houses even? Because on the night that God, or the, the, the morning after that God led them out of Egypt, the beginning of the Exodus, they had no time to leaven their bread. So they didn't have time to do it. So by not having leaven at this time of year, it recalls the circumstances of the Exodus. It's all about the Exodus. But the point is that in terms of the Exodus laws, the laws for, for observing this festival, anyone who has leaven in their houses says Exodus, will be cut off from the people. They'll be, they'll be severed from the destiny of Israel. So then let's see what he says. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Oh, well, that means that something about the Pharisees is incompatible with the journey that Israel is being called to undertake. Something about Herod is incompatible with the kingdom of God, with the message of Jesus. They are both called leaven in this negative sense. Um, I put it this way. The Israelites at Passover are, and the Feast Festival of Unleavened are commanded to get rid of all the leaven in their houses. Jesus is just saying, the Pharisees and Herod got to go. They cannot be part of this. And you should be careful that you don't become like them. Well, what are they like? Well, let's go back to our character template from last time. We know the four types of characters. There's the characters who um, 
When they hear the word, Satan takes it away from them immediately, uh, that might be the Pharisees, because they, among others, are immediately sort of appearing and, and, and opposing and not listening to Jesus and rejecting and all that. So don't be like them. What about Herod? Well, Herod isn't really like that. Uh, he is like the seed sown on the thorny ground. Uh, when he receive, he hears the word, he hears John the Baptist's word, uh, but, the, uh, but the cares of the world, the desire of other things, choke his response. They prevent him from acting as he should. And that's, of course, what happens at the banquet. He allows himself to abdicate his own rule to a very foolish oath. And he allows himself to be bound by that. Um, so don't be like those two groups. Now, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew changes this. Uh, he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Sadducees. And in Matthew's gospel, it, it supplies the interpretation. Then they understood, they always understand in Matthew, they understood that he was talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, you can see why the change was made there, because Herod don't got no teaching. So in Mark, it means something much more than just having opinions that, that are incompatible with the kingdom of God. It means some kind of opposition, some kind of obstruction. And we've seen the obstruction. We've seen that the Pharisees are, are the ones, in fact, who, who, who persuade the Herodians, the supporters of the current regime, to kill Jesus, even though they don't manage it. Uh, Herod the Great is the one who kills God's messengers, even though he hasn't gotten to Jesus or the Twelve. Maybe they're next. They have to go. They have to be removed. Don't be like them. Still, that doesn't explain the numbers. Okay, why the twelve? Why the seven? Well, okay, we know that the baskets of leftovers have to symbolize something, because Jesus says they do. What might the twelve symbolize, given the way that twelve has been used so far in the story? Tribes. Probably the tribes of Israel, right? Twelve months in the year? Probably not. Twelve tribes of Israel. You know, somehow this is, and that makes sense, because all the symbolism of the feeding story tells us this is about Israel on the Exodus. So he feeds and signifies by the leftovers that all Israel has been fed symbolically, right? Perhaps. But that creates a, a, a challenge. And what do we do with the seven baskets left over? Um, well, what are your ideas for seven? Any ideas? What could se If 12 means Israel, what could seven mean? The continents, are there seven? I didn't know there were seven continents. Not yet. Continents, days of the week, okay? Due to time constraints, Today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.